We're so glad that you've tuned into our Rolling Hills Community Church Sermon Podcast. I'm Jacob Thomas, and I'm the student director here at our Rolling Hills Nolensville campus. As we've been in our current series, Refine, we've already hit on three of the seven deadly sins. And in today's message, we're considering the sin of sloth. This sin can oftentimes be one of the most difficult to find and to even credit as sin. But if we aren't careful and aware of the ways that the enemy is working against us, this sin can creep into our hearts and lives. So today, we'll clearly define what this sin may look like in your life and the lives of others. And not only that, but we will discover ways to actively fight this sin in order to become more like Christ each and every day. Now, here's week four of our series. Well, it's good to be here this morning here at Columbia campus. My name is Mike Minter, and I moved down here in October and uh, Jeff and Eric Rogers convinced me to come on staff, and after 47 years of pastoring, I said, I'm not coming on staff. <laughs> Guess who's on staff? <clears throat> any rate, it's, I've, I've, I've loved the time, just loved it. I'd like you to take your Bibles, if you would, please, as we're in this uh, special series. Um, we've already covered uh, lust, gluttony, and greed, and I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn to Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6. We're going to look at the subject um, today of sloth. And I don't mind telling you I had trouble getting out of bed to get down here because I live a long way away. (laughs) There's an interesting passage in Proverbs. Uh, It's one of the funniest passages in Proverbs. It says the sluggard is hinged to his bed. You picture it like a hinge, a guy that rolls out, just rolls right back in again. That's almost how I felt this morning, but I knew I had to speak on this subject, so I'm here and delighted to be here. In Proverbs chapter 6, I'd like you to take a look at verses 6 and following, and we'll dive in, and then we'll pray. It says this in verse 6, "'Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler. Yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food in harvest. How long will you lie there, you sluggard? When will you get up from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest.' And poverty will come on you like a bandit and scarcity like an armed man. Father, we pray today that you would open our eyes, that we'd behold wondrous things out of your law, and we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. The word sloth literally means without care. I don't care. I don't care to keep my car clean. I don't care to mop the floor. I don't care to be at work on time. I just don't care. That's the idea behind sloth. The problem is, and there's a big problem, and I also sort of apologize to you that I'm, I'm more of an ad lib, and so I can't come up with, with outlines in advance, with fill in the blanks, and I've told them that when I came on, so I never quite know what I'm going to say, but the general outline is there. But the point is this, that We have this mindset that sloth is always about physical labor or not doing, you know, the things we need to do, Uh, taking care of the house, taking care of little things, putting things off, procrastinating, that sort of thing. And so I'm going to try to flip that a little bit because I think here in the United States of America, few people are slothful in that particular sense. Now, keep in mind, Proverbs was written about 3,000 years ago. It doesn't mean it isn't applicable today. It certainly is. But 
people lived in farming communities, and some of the terms here are things like, and I went by the field of the sluggard, and I saw that everything was overgrown with weeds, and so it had a lot to do with farming community, that type of, a, of an environment. We don't live too much in that kind of an environment. Not too many people today, because of all of our technology, are sluggards in that sense. But I think there's something we, we tend to miss, because even though there are so many verses that deal with this subject matter, and I'm going to read some to you. We just read Proverbs 6. Here's another one. It says in Proverbs 12, the hand of the diligent will rule. It says, while the slothful will put his labor aside. Proverbs 13, 4, the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. Proverbs 15, 19, the way of the sluggard is like a hedge of thorns, but the path of the righteous level the highway. There are lots and lots of passages here that talk about uh, the idea of not doing what you know you need to be doing, but it generally deals with physical labor. And I think that lets us off a little bit because most people would say, well, that's not me. I take care of my house. I, uh, I've got my kids dressed well. I work hard. I put in a, a hard day. And, and so we don't think of that person as a sluggard. Let's say you know somebody that's a CEO of a company and let's say his wife's got a business at home, and they have a nice car and a nice house, and he gets up early, and they get things going. And their house is neat and clean and orderly, and everything's in place, and the garage, all the rakes and everything are hanging you know, vertically, just perfectly. Everything is measured. You would probably not call that person a sluggard. You would think of that person as pretty successful, doing their thing the right way. However, what we fail to look at are all the verses that are dealing with being slothful in our spirituality. And so you can look at a person and say, look at how successful that person is. There was a man by the name of Ivan Besky a number of years ago. He was a guy on Wall Street, made gazillions of dollars. I mean, he made a lot of money. And I was reading Newsweek one, one week about his, his life, and they were, the interviewer said, uh, uh, Mr. Besky said, what do you attribute to your success? He slept about three hours a night. He had clocks all around his office that told him what time it was in different parts of the world so he could be dealing with his hedge funds and making investments and so on. He was never home, and they used the term success. What do you attribute to your success? I circled the word success. I said, the man is not a success. He's a total failure. He's never with his family He's never, he, he has no time for himself. He has no time for life. It's just about making money. That gets back to the issue of greed that was spoken of, I guess it was last week. So we find these, these strange definitions, and they become American definitions, but they're not necessarily biblical definitions of what it means to be a successful person. And being successful uh, in, the, in, the, in the biblical sense, I think Jeff even quoted it last week in Psalm 1 when it talks about meditating day and night, and the person that does that will prosper. That's the type of prosperity the Bible's talking about. So a person, again, can, can appear to be very, very successful, but from God's perspective is not successful. And wisdom is seeing life from God's perspective. That's what wisdom is. It's seeing life from God's perspective, not man's perspective. 
And in a moment, we're going to look at the American dream found in Scripture. We'll turn that in a moment, which is really a nightmare. It's not a dream. It's a nightmare. And so we must be sure that we're looking at these things from the biblical perspective and not just the way we see it. Ben Franklin, in dealing with sloth, made this statement. Dost thou love life? Then do not squander time, for that is the stuff life is made of. Now, he's talking about work. He was big on getting things done and accomplished an awful lot. But in Romans chapter 12, and I'd like you to turn there for a moment. Romans chapter 12. I want you to listen carefully to this, these words here. Romans chapter 12. We read these words. Starting in verse 9. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal. Some of your translations might say, never be slothful in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Now, that's a different type of slothfulness. He's saying, let your, let your zeal for God be uh, with great fervor. I think most pastors, at least for me, for the years that I pastored, I would say the greatest struggle, and I don't know, I don't know hardly anybody here, but most pastors struggle with seeing their people um, not being fervent, but being apathetic in their Christian life. They might come to church, do things, but, but still often there's a great deal of just apathy. And apathy is who cares? Apathy is I don't really care about my time in the Word, uh, my spiritual time, my meditation, uh, my prayer life. And, and you get right back to that term uh, of, of what it means. It's without care. And so God has much more to say, much, much more to say about not being a sluggard in the spiritual realm than he does in the physical realm. Even though Proverbs has many places that deal with it, if you sweep through all of Scripture, you'll find many, many statements that deal with being spiritually strong and using an awful lot of energy in becoming strong. We'll talk about where that energy comes from in a moment. Because it is natural in this world to be drawn by the ways of the world all the time. When you and I get up, if you're, if you're truly born again and you're in, you're, you're in Christ, the moment that happened to you, the exact second that happened to you, and it happened to me in, in a bed and breakfast in Copenhagen, Denmark, in June of 1970, when I passed from death unto life, the moment that happened, the exact second that happened, I found myself going against the grain of the world. I found myself going uphill. I found myself swimming upstream. Everything became a little more difficult. My language started to change. It was a resistance. Uh, the things I was looking at, it was a resistance. The things that I was doing, the way I lived my life, all of a sudden I was doing more of an about face and I found out that I was going against the current of what the Bible refers to as this present evil world, all right? The world is in opposition to God and there are so many things in the world that draw us away from being spiritually fervent. When you think of the, the different verses, I, there's an interesting verse in Colossians 
were a man by the name of Epaphras. They thank Epaphras for laboring day and night for them in prayer. That's hard. Pray without ceasing. That's hard. Meditate day and night. That's hard. No one who enters war entangles himself with the affairs of this life. That's hard. Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That's hard. All of these things are hard. They're good. They're good, but they're hard. There, there is work in the Christian life. There is effort in the Christian life. There is energy. Paul tells Timothy, exercise yourself unto godliness. For, for physical exercise, profit some, but exercising yourself unto godliness is really what profits. Would the world tell you that? Would never tell you that. So that as soon as we leave this sanctuary, this auditorium, this school, we step right back out into the current. And if you don't find the Christian life resisting you or, or finding it uh, a difficult, you might be drifting. Any dead fish can float downstream, all right? Don't require any effort at all. When I, when I became a Christian, I just all of a sudden said, man, this is hard, but it's good. It's good because the hard work in developing yourself spiritually changes your life. It dramatically changes your life. And if I had time, I'd tell you some amazing things that I've just experienced through the years as a result of God's wonderful grace. Um, consider this. When you're reading through the Sermon on the Mount or almost any of the teachings of Jesus, you'll find that Jesus, in his teaching, has everything going in a direction. It's what I call an upside-down world or an upside-down kingdom. You have the kingdom of darkness, you have the kingdom of God's dear son or the kingdom of light. When you're in the kingdom of darkness, once you hear the gospel and you pass from that darkness, you pass from death unto life, you enter this new kingdom. And that new kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. Here's what I mean. You give in order to get. You die in order to live. You, you lose your life in order to find it. You humble yourself in order to be exalted. You serve in order to lead. And there's a, the list is very long. It's everything that is in complete and total opposition to how the world thinks. It's in total opposition. This is what, when, when you hear the word repent, when Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he meant... Uh, it. it, it it, it's a change of mind. The word, the word repent means to change your mind. This is why Romans talks about the renewing of your mind. Because in our human nature, we're going in a particular direction. We're, we're allowing our, 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 these seven deadly sins to just sort of take over. They just, we just do our thing. But once you become a believer and the Holy Spirit indwells you, things begin to change. He becomes an instructor in your life. He becomes the one that is, that is prompting you. And you can feel that prompting. And you can sense that. Now keep this in mind. People outside the kingdom still feel a tug. Because the Bible says that God has convicted the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The law is written in their hearts. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says eternity is in their hearts. So I know that a person that doesn't know Christ, and it could be some of you, I, I don't know you, 
But I know that somebody that doesn't know Christ still has that, has that pull, but because of just this world, it is pulling us the other way. And that's so often why people don't come to the saving knowledge of Christ. Uh, Jesus says they, they don't like the light. They can't stand the light. And so there's just so much in, in, in this whole thing. You know, there's an interesting, I, I heard an interesting illustration years ago, and I thought it was one of the best illustrations I, I've ever heard in my life. And it goes like this, and it really has a lot to do with, with our Christian life. Here we are, we're believers, and we often have to take inventory to actually see where we are, all right? So here is my Bible, and I put it over here on the, on the right, and here is the world over here on the left, as you're seeing it. And I say to myself, well, I'm not, I'm not as, as perfect as the Bible is calling me to be. I'm not as godly as the Bible is calling me to be, but I'm certainly not as bad as the world. I'm a middle-of-the-road Christian. I'm just, I'm just, I'm right here, right in the middle. There's a problem, and here's the problem. Tomorrow, the Bible will still be right here, but the world will not be right here. The world will be over here. And where's the middle of the road for you now? It's where the world was yesterday. And then where is it? And then where is it? Pretty soon you find yourself in Kentucky, you know, playing the middle of the road game. I've played the game. I know what that game looks like. In 1939, Clark Gable said, frankly, my dear, I don't give a, he used a swear word. It starts with a D, all right? MGM was fined $5,000 for introducing profanity into the movie industry in 1939. Today, almost every movie would be charged 4 or $5 million for what goes out. And through the years, we'll find ourselves watching, listening to, reading things for whom Christ died. Uh, things that put him on the cross. And we have to be careful. This is not a lecture on morality. It's just, it's this idea of being fervent in spirit. It's this idea of fighting the good fight. It's this idea of laboring in prayer and spending time in the Word, spending time with the Lord. All these things are so, so important. Because we live in a world, and when you see the word, the term world in the Bible, it's, it's a very interesting word. Uh, particularly in, in the New Testament. In the New Testament, it has a number of different meanings. The word world can mean the physical earth. It can mean this present age. It can mean this present age. It, it can mean the people of the world, for God so loved the world. But it generally means the world system, the cosmos. What it means by that is that this world under the sovereignty of God, allows Satan to be the prince and the power of this present world system. And the world system is orderly, it's entertaining, it's beautiful, it's flashy, it's got all the stuff and everything, but underneath it is seething rivalry 
and jealousy and the seven deadly sins. All these things are there. And so we are living in a world that's at cross currents with the Bible's teaching and how we're supposed to live. And it's a fascinating study when it says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. Uh, all these different, these, you know, we're, we're to be in the world but not of the world, uh, of the world system. And so Jesus' teachings and Paul's teachings and the Scripture's teachings are this. You become slothful, I become slothful when I allow Netflix and the entertainment of the world. I'm not saying you can't ever watch anything. I watch certain things. But we really have to keep a close eye that these things are not dragging us away from being fervent in spirit. Paul said, I have fought the fight. I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, but not to me only, but to all those that love is appearing. That's something else. We don't even think much today about about the second coming of Christ. It just sort of fades away. And believe me, am I looking for it, particularly with what's going on right now in Ukraine everything else. Uh, but God's got his timing in that. But the older I get, the more I, I want to use my time wisely uh, for his glory. The more I want to, to, to see that there's just a certain amount of time left. When you get to be my age, there's, you don't know if you've even got tomorrow. But at any rate... Uh, but, but you begin to realize that time is compressed and you want to use it wisely. I look back and I see how much, so much time that I wasted in things that were so frivolous. They weren't necessarily bad, but they were frivolous. Now, I would like you to take your Bibles and turn to the, to go, the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. And this is a, a most interesting text. And we'll take a look at it. It's a parable that Jesus gives, starting in verse 13. Let me just kind of open this up. Here's what it says. Verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. So here's a man, and wait, I don't know if he's the younger, the older, whatever, but, but he's saying... Divide the inheritance. Now, in those days, uh, under the law of primogeniture, the older son got two-thirds, the younger son got a third. But there's a, there's a desire to make sure that he gets what, what is coming his way. And there's not necessarily anything wrong with that. But when it becomes something that, that totally grips us and how many family feuds have there been over inheritances? There are many. Listen to what Jesus said. And it's... it's what is so interesting, I have to pause here, is that anytime you, you talk to Jesus, when anybody's talking to Jesus and they say, hey, Jesus, I got a question. Or, hey, Jesus, when does he ever give you an answer? Never. He always tells a story and then he walks off and you're going, what was that about? You know, <laughs> what do you mean by that? You know, hey, two men one day went. Anyway, so here we go. Jesus replied, man, who appointed me to be judge or an arbiter between you? I, wait a minute. I didn't, that's not why I'm here. What are you asking me for? There's a trajectory here. Watch very, very carefully. Man, who told me? All right. Verse 15. Then he said to them, he's gone from this one man, now there's a crowd here, to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. She talked about a while back. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. 
I used to tell our church every once in a while, I'd say, all right, everybody, take your Bibles and turn to the one verse nobody believes. Everybody look at me. After a while, they've kind of gotten used to it. I do it about every three or four years. It's the verse that says, a man's life does not consist in the abundance of what he possesses. Nobody really believes that, which is why we possess so many things. But see, Jesus is going to the heart here. And this all has to do with the subject matter of sloth. This guy, this guy in the parable is not a sluggard, all right? Verse 16, and he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man <clears throat> produced a good crop. You don't get a good crop by being a sloth. You get a good crop because you've worked hard. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. He's got a lot of stuff, lots of stuff. As a matter of fact, when my wife and I moved here, we didn't know that in Tennessee you don't have basements. And our house has got so much stuff. I didn't know I had so much stuff. I've got more stuff than Bill Gates and Oprah. And here I am preaching, and I got all this stuff that's going to go nowhere other than the dump one of these days. We're looking for that. So he's talking about this. This guy's got this. He's, where am I? I'm like, and he's, it's all about I. I have many things. I have stored my crops. Verse 18. Then he said, this is what I'll do. This is what I am going to do. I will tear down my barns. More work. <clears throat> More work. This guy's not a sluggard. He's got some work to do. I'll build bigger ones, more work. And there I will store up all my grain and my goods. Now this guy, this guy has got some things he's doing that are, he doesn't know that are not sound thinking. Because in the epistle of James, it says, don't say tomorrow we're going to buy and sell and make this and that because you don't know what tomorrow brings. You don't know what happens. You have no idea. Well, this guy's got this whole thing planned out, all right? So here Jesus is, is saying a man's life doesn't consist of the things he possesses. And then he tells a story about a guy who is really, I mean, this guy is successful. He's, uh, he, he's, 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 a, he's a worker. He's, he's, he, this, this is the American dream. This guy is young. And he's going to store everything. This is early retirement. Is that not the American dream? Early retirement. Look, he goes on. It says in verse 18, uh, I'll do this. And I'll tear down my barns, but bigger ones, and all my goods. Verse 19, and I will say to myself, this guy apparently likes to talk to himself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. The reason I say he's young is he knows he's got a lot of time ahead. He's got, he might be 30, 35, 40. He's got this whole thing planned out, all right? And he is not a sluggard. This guy is a hard worker. He's got these crops. He's got these barns. He's, he's a successful man. He's got it all, many, many years. He said, I've got good things planned for many years. I'll take my ease, eat, drink, and be merry. That's the American dream. How many times you see on TV ads for uh, how to, you know, uh, play the lottery, you know, uh, get money quick. All the different things that, that retire early. 
uh, lay on the beach, uh, collect seashells, do all the, those things. And, and Jesus, is, as usual, is telling this story, and you're wondering, where is this thing going? This looks pretty good. He's going to sit back and eat and be merry. Verse 20, but God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? Now listen to this. This is how it is with anyone who stores up things for himself and is not rich toward God. It goes from, Jesus said, man to them, the crowd, to anyone, which is everyone in the world. That's what it is. And the irony is, this man is not a sluggard. He is diligent. He's a CEO. He's made money early. He's going to retire early. He's going to sit back and take his ease. He's going to eat. He's going to drink. He's going to be merry. And God calls him a fool because he wasn't rich toward God. I often tell our people back home, I would say, whenever you're reading Scripture, put yourself in the story because that's why it's written. All Scripture is given out of inspiration and it's profitable for doctrine, for proof, for correction, for instruction. So when you're reading a text, this isn't about this guy. This is about Mike Minter. This is about me storing up. This is about me not being rich toward God. This is about me uh, not taking time because I got dragged away to too many other things, wasted a lot of time. What I could have spent, and you, not all your time has to be on your knees and praying and all, that's not it. It's, it's just the course of your day. It's the thought of having prayer on your lips and meditation in your heart. That's the idea. Now the question is, when you look at all this, you, you feel like, boy, I've really gotten beaten up this morning. Why do we have this guy come in? Man, this is, this is, this is tough stuff. Let me, let me say something. Um, where, do we, where do we get the energy, the strength to go against this grain. Uh, how, how do we do it? Is, it? is it me just, you know, beating my chest and trying harder and so on? No. This is the good news. Here's the good news. Paul said, I labored more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God did the laboring. The grace of God. Titus says, for the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us the denying ungodliness and how we should live in this present world. Grace is an instructor. Grace is a power. Grace does the laboring. I don't have the energy. I don't have the ability. I can't do these things. I can't make any of these things happen. I can't change anything. But grace can. The question is, where do I get the grace? God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. So the first thing we ought to do every single day is say, Lord, I need grace for today. I need your grace to get through today. And when we start our day with that prayer and when we humble ourselves and say, Lord, I can't do this. I don't have anything in me. You know, I... I have you ever heard a person 
you've all heard this. Religion is a crutch, and particularly when they're talking about Christianity. Oh, you Christians, that, that, you, that religion's a crutch. Christianity's a crutch. I say, no, it's not a crutch. No, it's not a crutch. That implies I've got one good leg and one bad leg. It's a stretcher. I'm dead. And Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. So I need to start my day every day saying, I need grace. And I gotta humble myself by saying, Mike, you have nothing in you that can do anything. And I wanna be rich toward God. And so as I look at this, I don't wanna be slothful. Uh, I can arrange things in my garage and do a whole different type of things, but that doesn't mean that I am fervent in spirit towards the things of God. So I just wanna encourage you this morning that as you're facing the struggles of, of this present world, and it's a struggle. And Jesus said, in this world, you'll have tribulation. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And we see all throughout Scripture, all throughout Scripture, people developing uh, an eternal perspective. One of my favorite verses is Hebrews where it says, and Abraham was looking for a city that has foundations whose builder and maker is God. He was looking for that city. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded that they were sojourners and strangers in this present world. They didn't receive the promises here. The promises aren't here. The promises are on the other side. And there are great promises, particularly for those of us, for all of us here, that, that strive daily through his grace to be rich toward God and not slothful in spirit. So I, I hope this has been an encouragement to you. I knew we, it looked like we were going to crash land there for a while, but you always, at the end, you, you, just, you, you pull back and, and all of a sudden we start soaring because in reality, none of this can take place unless you have left the kingdom of darkness and have entered the kingdom of God's dear son. And that simply means this, that your human goodness offers nothing before God, nothing. Standing before God with your human goodness and thinking that he's going to let you in because you've got a spiritual letter sweater, doesn't work. <laughs> Nothing. He'll say, depart from me, you who work iniquity. Here's what you want to hear. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Those are the only two things you're going to hear. And like me, in June of 1970, I heard the good news that salvation was by grace through faith in Christ. When I realized that all the things that I had done didn't count a bit, as Paul says, I count them but waste. The righteousness to enter the kingdom of God is a perfect righteousness. It's the righteousness of Christ himself. And there's this great exchange where when you put your faith in Christ, all of your sin goes on him and all of his righteousness goes on you. For he has made Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. I stand perfect before the Lord. Perfect. Not because of Mike Minner or anything he's done, but because of Christ's righteousness that has clothed me and given me everlasting life. And I would trust that all of you have called upon Christ to save your soul. If you haven't, today's the day of salvation. Let's pray as the worship team comes back up. Father, thank you for these dear people. Thank you for this time to... Unfortunately, race through a text of which there's so much more, but I just pray that we would leave here today fervent in spirit and not slothful, rich toward you because you have taught us your ways. And so, Father, we just want to thank you that 
No one would leave here today without putting their full hope and faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ if they haven't, by trusting him and him alone. And we'll give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to our Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast, part of the Rolling Hills Podcast Network. If you like this podcast, subscribe to it or share it with some friends. You can also check out some of our other great podcasts like the Making History Parenting Podcast, Men's Leadership Network, RH Women's As You Go Podcast, and more. If you're interested in learning more about Rolling Hills, download our app, follow us on social media, or visit our website at rollinghills.church. We're thankful for you.